Hello, my name is Annalise. The Old Testament reading is found in Leviticus 16, 11 through 13. Aaron will offer the bull for his purification, offering to make reconciliation for himself and his household. He will slaughter the bull for his purification offering. Then he will take an incense pan full of burning coals from the altar from before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground perfume incense and bring them inside the inner curtain. He will put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense conceals the cover that is on top of the covenant document or else he will die. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 8, 1 through 6. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 6, 7 through 10. When you are praying... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you tonight in the name of Jesus as the people of God gathered together by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we look at your word tonight, as we hear your word tonight, that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and most importantly, we pray, as always, that you would reach down deep in our souls and that you would light our hearts on fire with holy love, that we would know the holy love of God for ourselves and that out of that, we would live lives of holy love for God and for our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. It's great to see you may be seated. Hello to everybody who's watching online tonight and staying warm in the quick turnaround of the weather. For everybody that's here, it's great to see you in person. A couple of announcements before we dive in tonight. First of all, you just saw a trailer for Alpha. Alpha is actually starting this coming Tuesday. So Tuesday, September 29th. 
in person at the commons. Because it's in person, space is limited. So if you have questions about faith, if you know somebody that's kind of thinking about faith and has a lot of questions about Jesus and prayer and church and all of those kind of things and is looking for a place to have those conversations, Alpha is the place. Pastor Jay will be at the info center after the service and you can talk to him. And next week, we're gonna be doing water baptisms in service. So if you've never been water baptized before and you wanna find out more, stop by the info center after the service as well. Uh, as many of you know, our lead pastor, Pastor Glenn, has been dealing with an issue with his vocal cords uh, for a number of weeks now. And I told you last Sunday that he was heading up to a specialist in Denver. Uh, he did go up there this past Tuesday, and they did determine that he is going to need surgery. Uh, so Pastor Glenn will be having surgery probably sometime in early October, uh, and then he'll have a four to six week sort of recovery time in there. So we're hoping and praying uh, for a miracle to happen before then. We're hoping and praying that the surgery will go perfectly. We're hoping and praying that he'll be back preaching with us sometime in mid to late November. Uh, so just please keep praying for Glenn, for Holly, for the kids. And Glenn, we know you're watching tonight. We love you, man. We're praying for you and for your whole family. All right, we are continuing tonight in our series called The Last Word through the last book of the Bible, that book of Revelation that you've either read a thousand times trying to figure it out, or you've read it once and thought, I'm never picking this book up again. And there's very few kind of in between. The book of Revelation contains the account of a visionary experience that a man named John had while he was exiled on an island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And he wrote down this visionary experience and he sent it to seven churches in Asia Minor, in Asia Minor in modern day Turkey. And this all, he experienced this and wrote this down sometime in the second half of the first century. At the time, John and his churches were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire, that they found themselves on the edge. John himself was imprisoned. His churches were persecuted. They found themselves politically powerless, living life under the shadow of this empire. They were a marginalized minority with no votes, with no guns, with very few, if any, rights, and little resources, little money. And yet in that setting, in that time period, the church exploded. The church thrived. The church grew. The church made this huge and massive impact on the people and the cultures around it. Imagine that. Imagine without all of those things, the church was still thriving for us today, we're sometimes thinking with all that we hear about how essential all of those things are, we wonder how is that possible? But I think wonder how many times we're missing something that the early church fully understood about where true power lay, where they found their real source of hope and joy and power and influence, where they really lived out of. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen in John's experience that in the vision, he's taken up to the very throne room of God, and he sees the one seated on the throne holding this scroll. 
And this scroll, we know, contains the plans and purposes of God. It contains exactly how God is going to bring about his kingdom on earth as is in heaven. It contains the plan for how God's going to fulfill all the promises he made and defeat his enemies and restore and rescue his people and redeem and restore all of creation. He's holding the scroll, but the scroll is sealed up with seven seals perfectly sealed so it can't be opened by anyone except for Jesus. And Jesus comes forward and he begins to break off these seals. The seals actually represent the very things that oppose God's plans and purposes in the world. They actually represent the powers of evil. And Jesus is coming in and just snapping them off. No one else is able to open the scroll, but Jesus, the slain lamb and the resurrected lion of Judah, he's able to come and actually begin to break off the seals because through his death and his resurrection, he's actually defeated the power of evil. And yet we know that Jesus has defeated evil, but evil will not be fully eliminated until he comes again. That we now live in this space between the great victory that Jesus has won for God on the cross and the final victory that will happen when Jesus comes again. And as the church, we're oftentimes asking ourselves, well, then what do we do in the meantime? What do we do between now and then? How do we, as the people of God living here and now, how do we confront evil? How do we address injustice? How do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with the pain that still exists in our world? How do we deal with death? How do we deal with the fact that these things are still here? Though Jesus has defeated them and he will eliminate them, what do we do now? What can we do? And there are times that we even ask ourselves the questions like, are we powerless? Are we just simply at the mercy of all of these things? Until Christ comes again, what do we do? The book of Revelation actually depicts the church doing several things in the midst of their own historical situation. And one of those things that they're doing in the midst of evil, that they're doing in the midst of persecution, that they're doing in the midst of exile, that they're doing in the midst of the Roman Empire, that they're doing in the midst of their own suffering, is that they're praying. They're praying. It's not the only thing that they do. We see the church singing. We see the church actively doing things to address evil in the world. We see the church taking care of the poor and the orphan and the hungry and the widow and those in prison. We see the church doing so many things. But one thing that's consistent, one thing that's foundational, one thing that's essential to the church through every single age is prayer. Prayer is actually the practice that supports and shapes everything else that the church does. It's one of those essential things of what it means to be the people of God. And if we're being honest, we're like, really? Like prayer? Like surely there's like something better we can do with our time. Surely there's something more effective. Surely there's something else that we're supposed to be doing. Does prayer really matter? Does prayer really make a difference because at times it feels like we're just having a conversation in our own head, doesn't it? Like at times if you're praying silently and you're saying words, you're like, how is this different than thinking? And how does that matter? 
Or other times, maybe you're in a room by yourself and you're praying out loud and you're like, I just feel like I'm talking to silence. How does that matter? Maybe you're with a group of people and you're going around and you're, you know, someone's calling and someone's hanging up and you've got the whole thing all organized and someone's covering this request and there's 12 unspokens and everybody's doing the like Christian prayer group huddle thing and you're like, how does that matter? Wouldn't it have been better if we had spent our time doing something else? How can prayer possibly be essential? How can it be foundational? How can it be one of the ways that the church actually confronts evil in the world? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 8, and we're going to see this beautiful, amazing picture of what John sees about prayer. It begins Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Then, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. If you were here last week or if you're familiar with Revelation, you know when the previous six seals are opened, there's these dramatic images. We see these horses coming out with riders named death on them. We hear people crying out in prayer. We see these sort of cosmic sort of events unfolding. We're seeing this dramatic image after dramatic image after dramatic image. And when we get to the seventh seal, we're like, yes, here we go. We're expecting something epic, something monumental, something final. We're thinking, oh, here it is. Game seven, bottom of the ninth. Jesus is up to bat and he's hitting a walk-off home run or something, right? The baseball image doesn't work for you. And you're thinking maybe this is like, oh, my favorite band is coming back out for an encore and they're playing my favorite song. Or if you're a movie person, this is like Karate Kid at the end, right? You're just like, this is the final kick to the face. This is what's going to happen. Here it is. Something big is going to happen. And instead, there's 30 Minutes of silence. Now, for some of you, the introverts in the room who live with a house full of extroverts, you're like, that sounds epic. <laughs> Those of you who are homeschooling your kids for the first time, you're like, yes. Those of you with new babies, please, God, 30 minutes of silence. Maybe to you that sounds epic. The question is, why? Like we're, we're looking for this, but instead we get 30 minutes of silence and then someone starts handing out instruments. Like here, you get a trumpet and you get a trumpet and you get a trumpet. Like what is happening here? It feels like a, it's a bit anticlimactic. There's of course a whole lot more to come. But first there's this interlude. There's this pause. There's this break. We'll say more about the trumpets in a little bit. But the question about why is there this 30 minutes of silence has actually baffled scholars for centuries. They're like, why? And everybody's got their different thoughts on it. But in the midst of it all, I think, given what follows, we actually see maybe a picture of what this is about. I think in this moment, what we see is that all of heaven is listening. That God himself is listening. And that God is listening to our prayers. That this is what God is doing. That in the silence, God is listening. In this moment, God is turning his ear toward his people and listening to the things that we are saying. 
God hears your prayers. God has actually heard every prayer that you have ever prayed. Those moments when you've had those silent cries in your soul, God has heard those. When you've been up at midnight pleading for God to do something, God has heard you. When you've been in pain and all you could do was moan, God has heard you. When you've pleaded with him, you've cried to him, you've groaned to him for your kids, for your spouse, for your finances, for the thing that you just can't seem to break free from. When you've been sitting there in the midst of an, a loneliness that doesn't seem to ever dissipate. When you've been crying out for things for the hundredth or thousandth or millionth time, God has heard your prayers. God is listening. And friends, you don't have to actually work to get God's attention. Sometimes we fall into this place of thinking like, okay, maybe God hasn't heard me yet. And we think, well, maybe I need to pray this way, or I need to pray louder, I need to pray differently, or maybe at a different time of day, or maybe if I try on my knees this time, or maybe if I, if I try the words in this order, or maybe if I do this, and we think maybe somehow if we can find the right key, suddenly God will listen. But no, the scriptures say God is attentive to our prayers. He is always listening to us. He's always listening like a father to a child. His ear is attentive to our prayer. You don't have to say the right words in the right ways in order to get his attention. You already have it because he loves you and he cares about you. God is listening to our prayers. It goes on in verse three and says this. It says, and then another angel came. He stood at the altar and he held a gold bowl for burning incense. And he was given a large amount of it in order to offer it on behalf of the prayers of the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense offered for the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the angel's hands. And we're all like, what? This is one of those moments we're reading in Revelation. We start to see something happening, some scene unfolding and we're a little bit confused about why this is included. What is actually going on here? And like so many times in the book of Revelation, John is seeing things and pulling things from the Old Testament. We see over and over and over and over and over again, Revelation is referring to and alluding to and pulling from all that has been previously written. And here he's pulling specifically from passages in Exodus and Leviticus about the incense offering. What would happen in the tabernacle or the temple is that one of the priests would go to the altar in the courtyard outside of the actual uh, enclosure itself. And on this altar, there would be a fire going because this is where all of the animals would be sacrificed. Earlier in the book of Revelation, John sees this altar and he sees underneath this altar those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus crying out. This is the altar of the animal sacrifice. And the priests would go to this sacrifice and they would go to, or they go to the altar 
And they would go to the fire and take some coals out of it. And then take the coals and put, I'm sure not with their hands, they would use it, you know, take the bowl, right? And put the coals in this container. And then they would go and they would grab a couple of handfuls of incense. And then they would walk inside the tent into the holy place. Not into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, but into the holy place where the priests could go. And at the very end of that room, there would be another altar. And then on that altar, they would take these burning coals and dump them out. And then they would take the incense and put it on top. And the incense would start to burn. It would start to go up and be this pleasing and sweet smell that would go up before the Lord who was enthroned above the Holy of Holies. And as Christians and followers of Christ have thought about this, they're like, this is what the image of prayer is. That prayer, like incense, is something that goes up to God and is this pleasing aroma to him. And so John is seeing prayer in this same way. But what's easy to miss here is that like the incense, our prayers must be placed on the coals of the sacrificial altar first. That our prayers are actually placed upon the burning coals. See, friends, prayer costs us something. Prayer isn't always easy. Prayer actually costs us something. When we think about how Jesus taught about prayer, we know certainly that prayer costs us time. Time that we believe that we either don't have or time that we don't feel like we want to give. We want to give that time to something else. Prayer costs us something. And yet there's something about the life of faith that calls us to move at the pace of prayer. If we're moving too fast, if we're going too fast, if our life is too full, that we do not have time for prayer, that we do not have time for what the scriptures describe as the essential things, as the foundational things, and something's gone off, prayer costs us time. But we know that prayer also costs us our insistence on having things our own way. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. I really wish he'd said, my kingdom come, like that I get to put my in there. My way be done. My will be done. All of my opinions happen. The way that I want all things to be, let them be uh, according to how they are in my mind. It costs us our insistence. It costs us our desire for revenge. We pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed or sinned against us. It costs us our illusion of self-sufficiency. We go through life thinking, I got this. I got this. God, I'm good. God, yes, that's fine, but I'm good. I've got this. I can take care of all of these things myself. I can put my life together. I can live wholly on my own. I can take care of all of my responsibilities. I can do all things in all ways exactly how they're supposed to be on my own. I got this, God. I don't need your help. And yet we're called to pray, lead us not into temptation. Help us. Free us. Comfort us, be with us. 
And it costs us maybe hardest of all our need to control all the outcomes in our life. Oh, if I could control the outcome of my prayer. If I could just control that. But we're given the model of Jesus. He says, let this pass for me. Let this cup pass. But not what I want. What you want. Prayer costs us something. The late, great Robert Mulholland, who was one of my professors at Asbury Seminary, put it this way. He says, prayer is a participation in the sacrificial fire that cleanses, cleanses and purifies by consuming all that is offered to God. True prayer cannot withhold anything of self from the consuming fire of God's holiness. This kind of prayer is a radical abandonment of oneself to God. We say, God, here we are. Here's everything. And I'm putting it on the fire. And I'm offering it up to you and trusting it wholly to you. I'm going to lay down between the rock and the tree now. I'm going to offer it all up. And I'm going to trust you with what happens. Prayer costs us something. And because prayer costs us something, it changes us. It changes us. Something happens in us. Something happens to us when we put ourselves in the sacrificial fire of God's holy love and see what it is that he does. Scripture goes on, it says this, then the angel took the incense container and he filled it with fire from the altar. So here the incense has already been offered and now he's taking it and he's filling this again with fire. And then he takes it and he throws it down to earth and there were thunder and voices and lightning and an earthquake. We're like, now we're talking. Now's the imagery that we were looking for. And then the seven angels who previously were given those instruments, now they're ready to blow them. Like Jay Benson getting ready to lead some marching band thing. I found out this week he played the trumpet so he can demonstrate for you after the service. Now something is happening here. What is going on? What we see as this passage unfolds is that the action doesn't actually stay on the altar. The action doesn't stay there. The action of the story doesn't stop with rising prayer, but what rises in prayer, God returns in power. That what rises in prayer returns in power because our prayers become the very means of God's action in the world. That God takes the prayers of his people and he gathers them. They come as a sweet incense, a sweet and pleasing smell to him. And they're gathered up and they're thrown back down to earth in what my friend Brett Davis calls a prayer bomb coming back down. See, prayer is actually how we participate in God's plans. Prayer matters because God listens and God answers. And God uses our prayers to advance his plans and purposes. And I know what you're thinking. How is that even possible? Why is that even necessary? Why does God choose to do it that way? I have no idea. It's only by the grace and mercy and kindness and the love of God 
that he says, I want to do this with you. I want you to be a part of what it is that I'm doing. The rest of it will remain a mystery to us. But the, the presentation that we get from scripture is that prayer not only changes us, but the prayer changes the world. The prayer changes us and prayer changes the world. See, friends, we can look around and we can look at the news and we can look what's happening in the streets in our country. We can look around at so many different things and we can see how much evil and suffering and violence and injustice there is in the world. We can look at our own lives and we can see it. But what we don't know, what we can't see, is how much evil has been undercut, stopped, thwarted, ceased, pushed back by the prayers of God's people. It's the thing that we can't see. It's the thing that we'll never know. It's the great mystery to us in the middle of it is how is it that God is actually using our prayers? Sometimes we just have to put it in the fire, let it go and say, I have no clue, but I trust you. I trust you with it. Friends, if he hasn't answered your prayers yet, someday he will. And what Revelation tells us is that when he does answer, his response will be unmistakable. We can't miss it. John likens God's response to our prayers to a trumpet sound, to the sound of trumpets going off. Over the next several verses, the trumpets blow, and what proceeds from the trumpets are some of the most unsettling images in the entire book of Revelation. They are troubling to us. They're as troubling, if not more so troubling, than the images that come out of the opening of the seven seals. But the visions that issue from the trumpets, like those that issue from the seals, are about judgments. They're not this sort of prediction of series of future events that are going to happen. They are instead proclamations that God has come to judge the entire fallen order in order that he might bring justice and peace and life on the world, on the earth, that he might actually recreate things. And when we see that unfolds from the trumpets is that actually the first five trumpets all parallel the plagues that were against Egypt. That we see almost a redoing of what happened when God was rescuing his people out of Egypt. The rest of them echo the prophecies that we see in Joel and Jeremiah about God bringing his people back from exile and restoring them to the land. See, what we're supposed to see as God's people in the midst of this, is not to get caught up in all of the images that are, out, that are playing out, but to actually focus in on the image of the trumpets. Because what a trumpet does is that a trumpet throughout the scriptures, trumpets announce good news for God's people. Uh, this is actually what's happening is that God is announcing good news for us. What John heard and what his churches heard and what we are meant to hear is that God is doing it again. That God is bringing about a new exodus. God is bringing about a new return. God is bringing about a new restoration. And this time he's doing it on a grand and global scale. He's not just doing it for Israel out of Egypt, but he's bringing all of his people out of fallen creation. He's not just coming against Pharaoh. He's coming against Satan himself. He's coming against every evil force. God is coming to make things right again. 
God's judgment signal that the fallen world at this place where all this brokenness and pain and suffering and tears, that that is coming to an end and new creation is coming. That something new is happening. In the Old Testament, trumpets are blown and the people are marching around Jericho. Signal victory and the return of God's people to enemy-occupied land. Say, I'm bringing you back home. In the Old Testament, trumpets are blown at Rosh Hashanah at the beginning of the new year to mark a new beginning for God's people. They're blown on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement to mark the fact that God has fully restored his relationship with his people. They're blown on the year of Jubilee to proclaim freedom to the captives, to say that everyone has been set free and you can go home again. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us that the trumpets will blow when he comes back, when the clouds roll back like a scroll and the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends. The trumpets are blown to welcome the king and his kingdom. That's what's happening It's that Revelation is trying to help us hear and see that all the bad things, all evil things, all suffering, all death, all destruction, that that is coming to an end, that that is being destroyed so that the king and his kingdom can come back and everything can be made right and good again. And the invitation to us is to participate in it. In our prayers are the way that we participate. Our prayers in God's great grace and mercy and a mystery to us become the very means of God's action in the world. He makes our prayers resound like trumpets. And through our prayers, God announces good news for the world. Good news that we see in Jesus Christ. If you would go ahead and grab your communion elements if you're here in the room or for those of you who are watching online, We're going to come to the table and remember that Jesus gave himself for us and that in his death and his resurrection, he has won the great victory for God and that someday he will come back and all evil will be put asunder. And in the meantime, he invites us to be with him and to pray and to participate in his inbreaking kingdom in the world. Let's pray this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Then we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.